Hi, this is the Girls Gotta Read podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Ellery. We are a bi-weekly book podcast that's like a book club you've always wanted to be a part of. And we are so excited for this episode. One of us is ecstatic. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk about <laughs> this, this book. episode uh, because we are covering Tender is the Flesh by Agustina Bastarica. I think I'm saying that right. Better than I could have. She's Argentinian, so if I've mispronounced her name, I apologize. But before we get started, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderfully. I absolutely have enjoyed how much I'm reading lately. Uh, My goal in 2023 was to read 100 books. And I think I have like 20 read so far. (laughs) So I might have to like amp it up a little bit towards the end of the year. But I think I'm going to make my goal. So I'm pretty excited about that. Can I tell you my goal? Yeah, what's your goal? 10 books. (laughs) (laughs) It could not be more different from your goal. I think I'm going to surpass it, but I know that the only reason I'm surpassing it is because we're doing this podcast. That's fine. That's okay. No, it's a good, it's a good reason. Yeah. Um, but I just think that's hysterical that yours is a hundred and mine's 10. My initial goal was to do 50 and by like week three of January, I was already on like book 10 and I was like, all right, I need to amp this up. Yeah. I need to make my goal harder. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, good for you. That's a great goal. So what are you currently reading? So you're going to be, you're going to be ecstatic when you find out what I'm currently reading. A Court of Frost and Starlight. I'm finishing it. Oh, the Christmas special. Yes. I'm like nine chapters from the end. Okay. And I don't, well, actually, you know what? I was going to spoil something. I was going to tell you where I'm at, but I'm not because I don't want to spoil it for anybody. But um, this is your favorite series. This is my favorite series. It's not my... your favorite... It's not your favorite... Is it your favorite series? My favorite book is Crescent City, but my favorite series... Is is Akatar. Is Akatar. And... And you love Sarah J. Mass. I love Sarah J. Mass. I love the the universe, and um, I'm so excited for you. Yeah. Because the next book is actually my favorite, I would say, of that series, Silver Flames. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So I really hit it, like, hot and heavy... And then I needed to back off because I'm so, there was a little, it was a little bit too much of like my mate, my mate, my mate. Like I was like, okay, I get it. Yeah. I get it. You've got Ray Sand <laughs> and he's amazing. I was just not, I needed a break. And then I think, I don't know what it was. Maybe because you dropped off Crescent City or something that made me want to go back to it. So. Yeah. I think that you'll enjoy Silver Flames okay. because Nesta is less cringy internally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's, I see like an enemies to lovers thing happening and which is a great trope. So I'm excited for that. It is a great trope. I'm not spoiling anything. Okay. Lips are sealed. Good. Well, what are you reading? I am still on the murder mystery train. I'm reading She's Gone by David Bell. Um, He wakes up um, in the hospital and he can't remember anything. And it turns out he got in a car crash with his girlfriend and there was blood in the car, but she's gone. Wow. And somebody releases a true crime documentary, like pointing the finger at him, but he can't remember it. And the question that he's trying to ask is, would I have been angry enough to hurt her? And he like doesn't remember. He doesn't know. I'm only on chapter one, <laughs> so I haven't really delved too deep into it yet. But I'm I'm interested to see where it goes. It's like a reverse Gone Girl. Yes, a little bit. Wow. Yeah. So it's psychological thriller. Those books are the best because you 
like I stopped doing all other functions just to finish those books. Yes. They're so like you just keep turning the page. Yeah, and in twenty twenty three I've seen a big transition in the books that I'm reading. In twenty twenty two it was all romance, it was all spicy, sorry mom. Um, it was all like girl meets boy, all of that. And now I've just been reading like murder mystery, thriller, psychological stuff and it's a great change. Yeah. So not to say that I'm not going to go back to my romance books someday. No, it's just good to have like a balance. Yes. Yeah. A little mixing it up. Well, that's all, that actually, that really sounds like it would be up my alley. So I want to borrow that when you're done with it. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> all right. Great. Well, um, we are not going to hold you guys off any longer. We got to dive into this book. We have so much to talk about. Just as a warning to listeners, we will be spoiling Tender as the Flesh. Yeah, we're going to be giving deep spoilers about the plot and the characters and even the ending. So now's a good time to stop this podcast and read it if you're interested. If you don't care that we're going to spoil the shit out of it, keep listening. Yeah. So I'm going to get started with the synopsis. So this is a dystopian book about a future where animals contract a a virus that makes them deadly to humans for consumption and also just for interaction. They're deadly. So essentially all animals are slaughtered. Including pets. Including pets and animals just in the wild. And humans are bred for meat consumption. Did I do a good job? You did do a good job. Yeah, that's pretty much, that's the very basic understanding of this plot. (laughs) Yes. Um, so why don't, Ellery, you kick us off with the ratings on this book. How is this book being received? So Books A Million uh, gave this book a 5 out of 5. It has a 90% Google score and then a 3.86 out of 5 on Goodreads. So Goodreads is a little bit lower than both of those, which I find more interesting because a lot of big readers use Goodreads. So big readers are saying it's a little bit less and I find that interesting. That's my own opinion, that Goodreads would be the more more critical of the three. Yeah, because yeah, because it's more used. Yeah. You're saying by like people that like to read. Yeah. Yeah. It's because Goodreads is like the social media for book lovers. Yes. And so is Storygraph. Yes. Um that's surprise three point eight what did you say? Three point eight six? That's surprisingly lower than I thought. I think, and we'll get into this a little bit, I think it's the gore. I think it's the yeah. the graphic nature. I bet there was a lot of people that just simply did not finish it. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And okay. that might have skewed the rating a little lower. Yeah. Well, what did you rate it? I'm gonna give this book a four out of five. Okay. The gore did not disturb me enough for me to not finish it. It didn't disturb me enough for me to dislike the book. I enjoyed the read um, as much as you can when it's talking about cannibalism. But I didn't like the ending. The ending fell flat for me, okay. and we'll get into that a little bit more as we discuss. Okay. What did you review it? I'm very interested to hear I your know. thoughts. Yeah, because I, when I was reading it, I was like weaving this story of me like hunched in the corner of my room, <laughs> rocking back and forth, trying to process what I was reading. So you literally have no idea. I'm giving this book a five out of five. Oh my God. I know. I'm actually shocked. I know. I know. But we're, and we'll talk about it. And 
Now, I have a question. Are you giving this, because your rating system, a five out of five, which is a perfect, in your in both of our opinions, a perfect book. Nothing needs to change. But also, you have said that five out of five books are only, like, are books that you would reread. Yes. So is that coming into play here? Like, you don't want to reread this? I actually read it twice just to prepare for this podcast. So... Not necessarily, no. This book... Okay. I think that if I would have enjoyed the ending more, I think I could have given it five out of five because part of my fives are I have to feel something. This book definitely made me feel some type of way. Like, I had big feelings about it. Um, I did reread it. So there was just one issue for me. Okay. So, and that's, that's the same for me, what you just said there. I'm giving it a five because it made me feel so many profound things and it had me thinking about it since I put this book down. I have been nonstop thinking about it. I've been nonstop talking about it. I've been recommending it. I've been, t- I've been basically like standing on rooftops telling everybody they need to read it. So that's why I give it so high. But before we get into more about the plot and start spoiling things... We need to, you know, make sure that you guys check your trigger warnings, right? Make sure that this book is appropriate for you to read, that, you, you know, honestly, it it checks every trigger warning box. Yes, there is, of course, cannibalism. There is animal abuse. There is murder. There is absolutely everything. So if you are at all wary of any of those topics this is not the book for you okay so we are not going to delay anymore Ellery you're on the edge of your seat I got to let you get into this give me a little you I know you pulled some quotes about the basically the world building that happened so why don't you start us off with those and then we can talk about the author so I'm going to read two quotes that give us a little bit of a backstory on the virus Quote, he wants to erase the distant images, the memories that persist, the piles of cats and dogs burned alive. A scratch meant death. The smell of burned meat lingered for weeks. He remembered the groups in yellow protective suits that scoured the neighborhoods at night, killing and burning every animal that crossed their paths. So that's a little bit of great imagery on what the world looked like in the virus transition. Cats and dogs are being killed. Every animal is being killed. So let's talk about how we got to cannibalism. Quote, Groups of people had started killing others and eating them in secret. The press documented a case of two unemployed Bolivians who had been attacked, dismembered, and barbecued by a group of neighbors. In some countries, immigrants began to disappear in large numbers. Immigrants, the marginalized, the poor. Not long after, they began to breed people as animals to supply another massive demand for meat. Unquote. So... Those two things are very startling, and I can imagine both of those scenarios happening. Because let's talk about how, if this world did happen, who would be affected first? It would be the marginalized. It wouldn't immediately transition from not eating people to eating, like, rich white folks. It would be the opposite of that. And I think that's really startling. Just to come out right away, because that's on page six, that quote. Right out of the gate, we're seeing exactly what's going to happen here. And I loved that. What did you think? This is a, it's a, it's a very difficult book um, in that you're exactly right. I agree with you. The, the, the poor, the marginalized, they would go first in this society. Um, and I think it speaks to 
oh man, we just have so much to talk about. There's like these themes that are running currents throughout the whole book. And one of them, which we can, I don't mind if we, if you just want to get right into it, is the desensitized nature of this violent thing. The author does such a good job of opening up exactly what you're talking about. These are in the first couple of pages, just building this world, which is incredibly violent, but also incredibly complacent. Yes. And it's not that much different than our current society. We see horrible things in the news all the time. There is a lack of empathy and respect for other human beings in our current world. So it's not a huge leap for me that this world exists in a book. It's So are you saying that it's not a huge leap for you that we would get to a place where we would eat humans? Yes. I think the complacency of how everybody is just okay with it and there's nobody that's like, what are we doing? That I feel like that could happen. That if the masses are doing it, there's such a effect of, well, if everybody else is doing it, let's just do it. If the government says we're doing this, let's just do it. There's no one out here being like, whoa, 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 <laughs> let's take a second. What is this special meat you're talking about? So for me, I think that this book is so realistic. Yeah. And, that, and that's terrifying. And I think that it was a very effective narrative. Yeah. Well, I want to dive a little bit into the plot just to bring up like some of the main characters. So the book follows Marcos, who is the like he's essentially like the manager at a quote meat processing plant meats being these humans who have been bred for consumption and it follows his life as he navigates the job that he does the life that he leads his personal relationships and living in this world that is brutal and raw yeah he's currently estranged from his wife because they lost their child right He's struggling with his ailing father. This is a this is a hard time in Marcos's life. Yeah, he has one sister who I believe is. I think she's I younger. I think than she's him. younger, the even though she calls him. She calls him Marquitos, which means like it's more endearing for like little Marco, little Marcos. But um, I, I think you're right. She is younger than him, and she has two kids, and those are really the those are pretty much like the big characters. I would say that this book is not character-driven. It's plot-driven. Yeah. The society is definitely driving the plot way more than any character because you don't really get attached to any of those characters. Yeah. They're just plot devices. Yeah. I mean, Marcos, we're definitely in Marcos's head, and we hear what he has to say, but I don't think anyone could argue that he's got a lot of character growth. Yeah, and I never was, like, attached to him. Like, I didn't really care about him too, too much. Yeah. Were you? I'm seeing your face right now. Well, I, I, I want to be able. To, I want us to like tell this in a certain way so that we're not just rambling. And I don't want to get too into Marcos, but I was rooting for him. Ah, uh, so that's what I'll say. I was rooting for him too, but I just never really was like in love with him as a character. Right. I usually get pretty attached to characters when I read. Yeah, and I wasn't. No, I, I wasn't attached, but I, I had a. I had, I I naively had a hope for him. 
So, but I want you to keep going um, a little bit onto what this, what you were talking about with these quotes. All right. So let's talk about the processing plants in the breeding centers. Yeah. So this is like, you want to get into like the meat and potatoes of this world. Yes. Okay. Funny that you say meat and potatoes. I know. I know. <laughs> it was really a bad choice of words. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, quote, he keeps the head separate, each in its own cage, to avoid violent outbursts and so they don't injure or eat one another, end quote. So that's talking about how they have the people separated, and they call them heads, which I think is very interesting because we call cattle a head of cattle. And it's equating these humans to cattle. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm going to, this feels like a good place for me to jump over to this one theme that I really wanted to talk about, which was the language that we use. There is a large part of this book that uses softer language to help you stomach these horrible concepts, right? Just like what you're talking about with head of cattle, the humans bred for consumption and being consumed are called head. They and even this is this is bigger than just this book, right? Our own food is packaged free range. It's packaged organic, cage free, vegetarian fed, humane, right? We use these words all the time to describe our own meat that we consume, but in rea- that's not that's not the reality. No, it's not. Those things are all lies to get you to feel better about what you're buying. Right. Like, and there's, A lot of the time. There's multiple quotes in this book where he will talk about the fact that we use terms special meat. No one would want to actually say human. No one's allowed to say. They, they, there's all these words. You have a, Don't you have a quote for that? I do. Quote, at first, Spaniel copied the traditional cuts of beef so that the change wouldn't be as abrupt. A customer would walk in, and it was like being in a butcher shop of times past. The label read special meat, but on another part of the package, Spaniel clarified that it was an upper extremity, strategically avoiding the word hand. Then she added packaged feet with the label lower extremity, and later on, a a platter with tongues, penises, noses, testicles, labeled Spaniel's delicacies, end quote. Like, that, she's feeding these customers a lie to get them to buy it. Because a package that's labeled feet, ew. Like, yeah, I wouldn't, ew, grody. Well, you, you've, <laughs> used, you've used the word lie, but it's, is it a lie? It is a lie, right? Because she's not saying the word feet. So you're not, it's not that you're wrong. It's just like, isn't that funny, the way that we are willing to soften things and soften the language to make things more acceptable you can buy all of those pieces of like all of those different types of I guess you would say all those different parts you can buy those of any animal you wanted at a butcher shop and it would just be labeled like extras or delicacies or so it's it's wild to think about this yeah because what the heck is a hot dog like, when you see a food labeled hot dog, that doesn't tell you what it actually is. Yeah. I think, I don't know what a hot dog actually is. I don't, I don't eat meat, so I try to stay away from that aisle. Well, even store. though I do eat meat, I, I don't know what a hot dog is. All I know is it's just like, it's, it, I think it's random meat shoved into a plastic casing. Gross. 
So we we do this in, in our society today with the misguiding information right. to lead you to buy the product. Right. But like a lower extremity, you still know what that means, but it sounds better than penis, foot, leg. Like it's detaching the being from the product. That's that's the whole point. I don't what know what you just if you've said. Ever seen detaching the being from the product. That is the essence yes. of what's happening here. There's a big emphasis on this book with meat that has a first and last name. And I don't know if you've ever seen in the grocery store when they put the picture of the cow that the beef came from and they give it a name. And it's I think it's run by PETA, maybe. Um, and as an attempt to to give the the beef a name. And, and not humanize, but like, because it's not a human, it's a cow. But like, it's giving the identity back to what you're eating. And I, I don't think I would buy a package that has a cute little cow named Daisy on it. Well, no. I mean, I don't know. Like, I know emotionally I'm a pretty sensitive person, but I'm not, I'm not naive. We need to, like, because there's a big difference between the person that goes out and hunts and shoots animals, right, and then uses every piece of it to stock their freezer, whatever, and hunts their own meat and treats it respectfully and then feeds their family off of it. Like, that's different from what we're talking about, right? I think so. Do you think that's different? I am a vegetarian, but I'm pro-hunting. Yeah, because, like, you're, you're sustainably living off the land. Like, even for a part of my life, I lived in Alaska, and I lived... I knew people who lived off the land. There were Bush families that would come into the Walmart like once a year to get, I don't even know, maybe toothpaste, but otherwise they were living off the land, you know? And so there's a sustainability to that. And there's a, I'm separating those people from what we're talking about here, which is more the factory farming aspect of this world where they eat humans, right? I agree. There's also hunting is a, is a part of this book. They have the game reserve where you can... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that exists in our society. There are deer farms in my hometown where you can go and you can get your biggest kill and these, these animals are raised there. It's basically a zoo that you get to go in and you get to shoot what you want. Yeah. And that to me is not what I mean when I say I'm pro-hunting. Yeah, but, you know, it, I'll tell you, I know somebody who's raising deer. I know her. I work with her. She's raising deer, very specialized deer, her and her husband, and they, they sell them for a lot of money to these recreational hunting grounds. But the deer have, she showed me their whole setup. The deer do have a lovely life. Like for the first five or six years, they are completely free range like they get the best food that they're growing up around the children and stuff like they're really taking care of them where the other alternative is this deer is just going to get hit by a car off 422 if you know if it were you know so i don't know i'm a little torn so let me ask you a question if the people in this book that are raised for meat got to live normal lives until it was time for them to die would this have been an easier stomached idea would it have grossed you out as much no no 
this, because you're talking about when I was texting you and I was like, I can't make it through the book. I'm 20 pages <laughs> in. I'm dying. I was talking about when he is describing, he's describing the special meat. He's giving you the full picture, Marco says, and the author, right? They're talking about how the women who are the breeding women, the breeding females, have no arms and legs because why would they need them? That had me close the book and go, and I stared at the ceiling for like an hour after I read that part. I was so disturbed by just that piece of it. And then they talk about the cuts, right? They talk about like that whole chapter where they are describing how they actually process the meat and get this done. I could not, and the first generation pure, how they get branded every year, and that's how old you can, how, how you can tell their age. I was sick to my stomach. Sick to my stomach. Yeah. So, yeah. Had Marcos been like, oh, this is 86-year-old Ronald, and he lived a long life, and he had dementia. He has dementia, so now he can be eaten. I would have been like, oh, okay. I still wouldn't eat Ronald. Yeah. But no, I could stomach him. Yes. Okay. I see what you're saying there. So it's about the lives that they lit, led before the actual act of killing. Because the act of killing is going to be horrible no matter how they lived. So that's not the part that we're taking issue with. No. You know what? My big... You know... If you're asking me, like, my big issue with this world, it's for a fact that you and I both know. Because before I started eating meat again, I was a vegan for a year. And then I did vegetarian for six years with maybe occasional food. Like, you and I know that that life can be lived. Yeah. And you can get all the protein you need. Like, And there's a huge falsity about how much protein... We actually need to consume, and, and re- the reality is we consume way more protein than we need to, right? So you and I know that because we both have lived that life. So when I first opened the book, I was just like, why are we even eating humans? Like, what about wow, tofu? everybody's vegan now. Like, right, exactly. I was like, great, we're all plant-based, and we all have healthy guts now. We're not going to have as many GI cancers anymore because we're not eating as much meat. Like, yay. I did not... I was not thinking immediately, like, if this happens, right, if animals contract a deadly virus, like, my first, I'm not going to turn to you and be like, okay, Ellery, well, it's time for you to go. (laughs) Let's go ahead and slice off your arm. Like, that's not my gut instinct. I would just be like, oh, well, now we're all vegans. I'm also, I'm sorry, I'm jumping back to this. The thing with the pets, I'm just saying, I'm a crazy cat lady. I love my babies. I'm going down with them. If this world <laughs> happens, like my cats don't bite me, they don't scratch me, I'm gonna live out peacefully. Well, and the reality is, is that nobody would ever know you yeah. have cats. I'm gonna hide them. Yeah, Charlie, my dog, you've met Charlie. She's very much a introverted, small, kind, terrifying, 60 pound pit bull. No, <laughs> so she can live an inter- inside life. We, she doesn't need to, she would never need to know. I would not, I would not be volunteering her up for the slaughter no i would be going i would be like you've got to go through me yeah so i but love you that they added in the people that resisted that and and hid their pets oh my gosh my nana my nana would rather die same than have her dog taken away i'm definitely the person the house is burning down and i'm going back in there 
to oh, get them. Oh, yes. And I'm willing to die for my... But a lot pets. of people are. Yes. Right? So, yeah. yeah, but that's... Yeah, it's... That part was interesting because I wasn't expecting it. Like, I knew what this book was about. You and I both had talked about it. I was... One thing I was not expecting was for all of the aspects of this world to be fleshed out. I expected to read about the the cannibalism. I did not expect the recreational hunting. I did not expect the slaughtering of every animal, even for recreation purposes like pets, like zoos. I, I didn't expect those types of aspects. And there's more than what I'm just talking about. It was so effective because of that, though. The world was so fleshed out and so believable. Yes. I could step from this world into that world seamlessly. Right, because they had thought of every aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I loved that they included the pets, and I loved that they included the zoo. I was like, those are the animals that we interact with daily. Yeah. And they're, they're more included in our human experience. Right. So let's focus our discussion now. Let's talk about a couple questions that we have related to this novel. My first question for you, Emily, is do you think this world is realistic? Yes and no. And I think it's realistic because at the end of the day, you can take away the consumption of humans and insert some other horrible exaggerated thing here right like I think that this is a world in which what we're really talking about is like the irony that we exist in and the fact that you know you can pet your cat but also go buy inhumanely slaughtered chicken at the grocery store right like that's that's the irony of the world that we live in but we could swap it out with any other thing so part of me wants to say yes the emotional side of me says no because I am still someone maybe naively who has who has this feeling inside that says that there's a line you can't cross so (laughs) I know I said it I know that that's naive but I still do feel like there's a line you don't cross and this is a line that this would be a hard line in the sand and I do believe that this is a cruel world in a lot of different ways, but I have a hard time like deciding or making it so that this book would become a reality. What do you think? So my answer is yes, that I think this could happen. I don't think it would happen, though, on a large scale that involved every human being eating meat. I think that you would see a group pop up that would maybe start consuming meat because they didn't have access to anything else. But I don't think that every human being you'd come across would be sitting down at the kitchen table eating their special meat. Like, I still feel like, I'm vegetarian. I would probably just keep that. This would not affect me. Yeah. <laughs> if animals stopped being able to be consumed, I would just transition into being a vegan. Like, that would be my step. Um, because I, I have some examples of real-world cannibalism that people are put in these survival scenarios and it's their only option in order to survive and I don't find aside from like serial killers that that commit cannibalism that there is people that choose this life 
right. out of out of just enjoyment. It's usually put in a place of necessity because I don't know what I would do if I was marooned on an island and my the other person there died. Like, yeah. and I had no other food. Probably at that point, I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. But like, I don't want to think about that. I hope I'm never in the scenario in which my only option is my counterpart eating their leg. Like, no thanks. You've brought up the really good point of access that there, and it's something I hadn't thought about. And unfortunately, it shows my privilege. You and I live in an area where we have access to a wide variety of resources. We have multiple grocery stores to choose from. We have a nice climate that allows us to eat all different types of foods it is not unrealistic for you and I to not consume meat so it was a part and that and again it just goes to show you my privilege that I wasn't thinking about that aspect of it is that people that do not have access to these things would be forced into this and I like what you're saying that you think it could happen on a smaller scale because when you phrase it like that it did make me think that this could be realistic and also, let's go back to the privilege thing that you brushed on there briefly. It's a privilege to choose not to eat meat. It's a privilege to be vegetarian and vegan. Like, the cheapest foods at the grocery store are, are sometimes meat-based products. They can also be the most expensive. But, like, a hot dog can feed a... Like, a hot dog package is relatively cheap and can feed a, a big family. Right. Like, yeah, there is privilege in being able to pick good, healthy sustainable options that you feel good about yeah at the grocery store we're seeing that right now because the cost of everything is so expensive especially since the pandemic the the cost of meat the cost of and especially this year the cost of eggs is incredibly incredibly expensive um i've even seen tiktoks where people are they're going to the dollar store and they're showing people how they can feed their family of four for 20 bucks at the dollar store. So we are living, we're living in a time right now where we're seeing pe- people like us, we're pretty comfortable, but then we're also seeing there are people that really do not have any kind of resources. So it's definitely, a, you're right, being vegetarian is a privilege. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm very lucky to be somebody who's been able to sustain being a vegetarian because morally I feel good about my choice but if I didn't have the money to support that lifestyle I, I I would have to set aside my morals for that and that and that's not inherently wrong to not be able to afford vegetarian food and to eat meat then like that's okay if that's you, fed is is best there like food is food at the end of the day like, yeah but it's a tough if it it's it's tough for people that want a lifestyle that they can't afford, but that's a bigger discussion. But it's better than starving. Oh, absolutely. Like I, I hate the the topic of of people that are on their high horse about being vegan and vegetarian, and they're looking at a like a college student that maybe has twenty bucks a week to spare, and yeah. they're like, get this expensive oat milk. No, that's not a good choice for that person that only has $20. Like, they yeah. need to be able to eat their meals right. rather than just go hungry. So, refocusing here. I have some real-life examples of cannibalism. Uh, my first one is, in 2012, scientists found bones from a colony in Jamestown that had the skull cracked open, showing evidence that somebody ate 
the person's brain. Because the settlers of Jamestown were starving. They were eating their boots. Like, this was a survival do-or-die scenario. So a lot of my examples of cannibalism are out of survival here. So that's my first one. My Jamestown, s- Virginia? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I should have said that. No, no. Yeah. I mean, I no, I, I, I had a feeling that's what you meant. I just wanted to make sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. and then in 2012, they found they found a skeleton that showed that. And it was like an eye-opening experience for scientists to be like, wow. Right. Rough start. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then my second one is in 1816, a ship uh, came, it got stranded 50 miles out from shore, and there were not enough lifeboats for everybody. And people died from murder. They died from starvation. And then eventually, people turned to cannibalism. So of the original 147 passengers, there were only 15 survivors. Yeah. So again, a survival scenario. What the heck are we going to do? We're out in the middle of the ocean. Like, we don't have enough lifeboats. It's a Titanic scenario of there's not enough lifeboats. Yeah. Like, and then people are starting to go a little crazy and then turn to cannibalism. And then my final example is probably the most famous one. I think you'll know what I'm talking about with this one. The Donner Party, in which travelers got stuck in icy conditions. All of their food supply ran out. Their cattle died, and people turned to cannibalism. When rescuers got there, the, the la- one of the last survivors was found preparing himself lungs and liver of one of the fellow members. Like, he was out there cooking himself up lungs and liver. And now there is there is some rumors that he chose that lifestyle. He started murdering people and, and, and developed a taste for human flesh. But, like, as I said, they're rumors. The Donner Party is famous for using cannibalism as a survival mechanism. Interesting. Have you ever heard about that one? Uh, yeah, I've heard the, of the Donner Party. I was not aware of the other two. But I'm going to ask you a question. Is the consumption of humans for meat in this book for survival i don't think so i think that there's other alternatives to meat in the, in this book that that could have exist but uh, this book wouldn't have been written w- w- without that like there there needed to be no option other than consumption of this special meat in our actual life we know that you can s- sustain yourself on tofu and veggies like we know that but this book is so much more effective for you to feel like there is no other option. Well, I'm asking because there's the part where the Marcos goes back to the zoo to check in on the little puppies that he found. And the kids are talking as they're looking at the puppies. And, there's, and one of the kids says, everybody knows that this is the government's way of controlling the population. And, like, they... They imply that there's an undercurrent of rumor about how it's really the government at a larger, like on a larger mass scale, just having more control. So that's why I ask because, you know, we've talked about the access aspect of vegetarianism and veganism. So we we do believe, right, like you, you and I do believe that this is for survival, but at the same time, could it also be... A little bit of control I think the answer is is yes I think both can exist in this book like it is out of a government's attempt at being controlling and then also it's a lot of people's only option 
my opinion on this book was it was written from a perspective mostly of out of survival. Now I do I do reference that quote that you're talking about with the the boys at the zoo. Yeah. Because I think that there was a couple hints about the government being controlling and like the big brother effect. Okay. But I don't think that that was the most important part of this book. That wasn't the lens that I was looking at it through. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to dis- I'm going to disagree with you. I think disagreement okay. is healthy. Okay. Fabulous. Because I did not view it as survival. I viewed this book more as why we eat the food that we do and it's a brutal harsh world and this is the brutal harsh reality with the quote that we're talking about with the kids at the zoo while these kids are pondering whether or not the government is really using this legal cannibalism as population control, they're they're torturing the puppies. So this is just not... These are no longer the same humans. Like, on a mass scale in this book, these people are psychopathic. Yes, and I think maybe I have some of my own bias there of I... I don't see myself in these people that are beating the crap out of a puppy and talking about government control. I see I see humanity is better than that. We're capable of doing better than that. And it would only be out of survival that people are eating meat. Like yeah. for myself. Right. There's definitely some bias there yeah. for uh, from on to my end. But like I just have more hope for the world than that. That yeah. I I wouldn't make the choice lightly to chow down on a burger made of leg. Yeah. Like but I could potentially eat somebody if it was my absolutely only option. Well, I need to be truthful. And not that I wasn't being truthful before. Oh, my God. Are you a cannibal? But, <laughs> no. But I, because I did a little bit more research into why she wrote this book, that has swayed my opinion. Okay. So did she write it to she, talk about government? She wrote it to talk about. So let me back up. Okay. Augustina Bastarica, Tarika, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce. I think you're from, actually doing a really good job. Oh, with good, that. good. From Argentina, and she is vegetarian or vegan. She does not eat meat. Slay. So, but she says that she did not intend to write the vegan pamphlet, she intended to write the best book that she could. That's all she sought to write. I think I've got this right, that her brother is a chef. And so she is watching him kind of prepare meat dishes, right? She's thinking about the way that we treat animals. So that's very much a part of it. Don't get me wrong. Factory farming, all of that. And she was walking down the street in, I think, Buenos Aires. And she sees a butcher shop where beef carcasses are hanging in the window we've all seen that before right even if you've only ever seen that online you know what i'm talking about a butcher shop and she imagined human corpses and that's how she came to write this book because she was she kind of had that vision and then she just took that she completely outlined the entire plot she sat down and wrote it but she still claims like i'm not trying to write a book where we all need to be vegans And she specifically says because she thinks those books are harmful as well. She just intended to write the best book that she could. 
I like that this book, though, can be used to just make you more aware when you walk down the grocery store aisles. Like, being conscious about the food you're eating is is good. Like, let's not just blindly follow what packages say and all of that. Like, even if it's not everybody go vegan, like, everybody look at what you're eating a little closer. Let's Let's make some conscious choices. Yeah. Like, I think that's really positive that she imagined a world in which it, it was humans rather than just being like i'm a vegan i'm gonna write a vegan book like that's yeah really no cool. it's 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 very creative but she also goes on to talk about and this is she's specifically talked about argentinian culture but it's every culture i was gonna say this, this culture and the America. food that we eat right like we food and culture are hand in hand you can't deny that and, like, even, like, the holidays that we have in this country, specific foods go with specific holidays. Um, it's It could be said for any country, just insert that country and you have that culture, right? That is very prevalent in this book. Do you remember the part where one of the employees at the plant is having a kid? Yes. And they're and they barbecuing eat- a child? Yes, and that reminded me so much of when people eat like veal because isn't that baby cow isn't that calf and we label it veal because it doesn't it's not just called baby calf like it's not just called baby cow and going back to your language point yep it plays back to the language like that's an easier way to stomach that meat is by giving it a whole new name that does not imply that it's young how disgusting though you're having a child Let's eat a child. Oh, right, but terrible. It's a culture. Yes. Right? And we can now talk a little bit about how hard of a read this was for me. I was really struggling with the first couple of pages and the first couple chapters, I should say. And I was texting you like, this is such a hard time. So when I finally finished the book and closed it, my mind was racing. I had so many thoughts going through my head. But I didn't really know how to prepare for this podcast. So I'm just trying to give you the backstory. Like, I ended up, what happened was I read about the author. And then I was able to really dive deep into, like, the big themes of the book and what I really liked about it. So um, Bas Tarika, our author, she talks about culture as a part of, like, meat as a part of culture. And she specifically says... To many Argentinians, a meat dish is not seen as a being, but merely as protein. In my country, meat is a part of our national identity. Barbecues are basically considered sacred rites, and if they and if they were part of a religious celebration on Sundays, many Argentinians place pieces of meat on their grills and meet with friends to eat it. That is very much like the funeral. Like, the celebration of life that Marcos' sister prepares, right? Yes. When she brings out the arm and they all eat it. Oh, my God. I was sick to my stomach thinking about that whole part. But so that kind of framed why I view it, why I can view it. Like, you're viewing the survivalist, but you also just thought about this book on your own. I got a little bit of help from the author. It's so shocking to me that you gave this a five with the context of how much you struggled 
reading yeah. the physical book. <laughs> yeah, well, we well, that's absolutely what we should go into now is why we gave it the ratings that we did. I want to start with you and what you, like, what was the most startling part of this book for you? So the part that I had the hardest time reading was the laboratory and Dr. Volka. Uh, I work in a lab. I have been in bio classes. I've dissected animals, even as a big animal lover. I've actually dissected a cat. And I did it. I, I how I how I survived dissecting a cat was I, I looked at it and I was like, this cat is already dead. What can I learn from this? What can give this death meaning? And how can I use this to better my studies? And but it was really hard for me. And and the the laboratory was so startling for me because I didn't see that from her. She was doing these horrible experiments and basically torturing these living beings. And I didn't really see any deeper purpose to her experiments. And Marcos even calls her out on it. And he's like, why isn't there a cure yet with this advanced laboratory? Why are you doing all of this nonsense when you could be trying to find a cure? Like, she was basically just torturing these people for no purpose. And I think that experiments and science should be done for a deeper meaning past how can we just look at a, a human heart that's still beating while the person is conscious? Mm. Because she does that. They do that in the lab. So we have a couple quotes that really, really show the depravity in the lab. Quote, he sees specimens without eyes, others hooked up to tubes, breathing nicotine all day long. Other specimens have apparatuses on their heads stuck to their skulls. Some look like they're being starved. Some have wires sticking out of every part of their body. Others pulling pieces of skin off arms of specimens who haven't been given anesthesia. He thinks the processing plant is better than these places. At least their death comes quickly. End quote. Terrible. Yeah, but... We, it's, it makes sense in this world because consuming humans, at least humans that have been, like, we are talking about, like, they've taken the poor and the marginalized, right, during the transition. They've, they've started breeding them. So we just have all of those people, those are the only people being eaten, the ones bred for consumption, right? So they're essentially in this book, they're less than everyone else. Yes. Who wasn't a part of those bloodlines, right? Yeah. So it's not a far leap because when we think about like human trials or animal trials and testing products on animals and like this lipstick is cruelty free, which means that they didn't smear it on the back of a rabbit. Like it's not that far off that all of a sudden this scientist is like, oh, the door's been opened. And now that we've bred humans for consumption, I can buy them and I can test however I wanted to test before. You know? Yeah, it's it's very real world and it's realistic, and I'm not saying that it isn't. It's just this was the part. This of the was the book. part that cringed for you the most. This this was the part where I was like, I am I am at the end of the day a scientist. I could put myself in this lab, and you know, it's a job for a lot of these assistants, and I just it it was just so grotesque and yeah. painful and violent for me. This was the part that I had to close the book. This was the only part where I had to like walk away. Interesting. Because I think since I work in a lab, it was just, it struck a chord with me. Yeah. And um, getting back to it, they called Dr. Volka, Dr. Mengele. And Dr. Mengele was a Nazi doctor at Auschwitz. And he has gone down in infamy for his cruelty. And he 
would do experiments on twins. He did a lot of twin studies. He did a lot of studies on eyes. He was called the angel of death because he would pick people to go in the gas chamber. He would pick people to medically torture. And I've heard people argue, well, how much did we... We learned so much from Dr. Mengele. We, like, all of that. I I don't care. (laughs) Like, he was sewing twins to each other to see how long they would live. He would cut off arms and see if the other twin could feel it. Like, he would be torturing living children because a lot of his experiments were on children, and I think that's something that people do with science. They accept their cruelty for what you learn from it, and I think that that's so devastating. Yeah. So devastating to hear. Yeah, absolutely. But I loved that they included Dr. Mengele in this because it calls back to an actual real-world example right. of a lab that performed crimes against humanity. Right. Yeah. And who, once again, was not asking themselves. I mean, well, there's the problem is, is like we're also talking about Nazis, which was, I mean, there was, we're talking about mass genocide. So yeah. that already in and of itself is not normal everyday world it's it's incredibly inhumane so we're talking about that but i i agree with you it's a it's a great real world example that it tied back into he's not somebody that i was familiar with i honestly i read that part and i just i thought i kind of disassociated reading the book (laughs) i had to survival mechanism i did i did i put on my i put i did what i needed to do to survive this book and like just get through it so I think I just read that part and just kept moving. Yeah. Because I was like, i got to finish it and give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> the story of Dr. Mengele in real life is he escaped after, and he got to live his life. Wow. Yeah. And without any repercussions. Without any repercussions, which is very, very commonplace with a lot of the Nazi uh, doctors. They got to go. They got to live out their normal lives. Like, he assumed another identity he, like, died of a stroke. Wow. And that was his ending. Not that's horrible. jail time or anything. A lot of them were actually ex- executed for their crimes against humanity. But I loved that call out that they called her Dr. Mengele. But that was before the transition. And then, and then they say, uh, then testing on humans became so normalized, and then she started winning awards. So she grew up, goes from being called Dr. Mengele behind her back to now being an awarded scientist. So that, to me, really demonstrates the transition of society. This went from cruelty to being awarded. Yeah. And that, and that to me, was like, wow, that's a lot. That's really heavy. Yeah, it is. So the whole book horrified you. There's not really, like, one part other than the pregnant women. The whole book... So I... It's not a total correct. It's a correction. The whole book didn't horrify me. The beginning horrified me when they talked about how they processed the meat, and when Marcos was explaining to the two job applicants how the head are processed and how they kill them, bleed them. That whole process was sickening. The, the very the very jump where he's talking about the pregnant woman, I don't know why that got to me. So I mean, I know why it got to me. It's horrible, but it really affected me. Um, but that that would be my most that would be my most horrifying part. Yeah, yeah. I want to get into that switching back to our ratings. Yeah, and you can tell me why you gave it a four out of five, and we can talk about the ending. So. I gave this a four out of five because the ending shocked me so much. And there were so many little, like, Easter eggs throughout the book that 
had me believe something else was going to happen there. But I think the ending was still realistic. Like, Marcos is just a puzzle piece to a bigger problem. And he, at the end, uses Jasmine, which is the person that he's gifted to eat, to glean what he needs from her and then discards her. Which is ultimately what everybody is doing. They're using people to get what they need, which is sustenance, and then they're discarding them. Right. But I had so much hope for him as a character. Well, and that's the plot that we didn't talk about, was that Marcos was gifted a first-generation pure female that he didn't want, that he throws in his barn, a, a, a human woman, but she's bred for consumption, and he impregnates her. He has he already lost his child and was estranged from his wife. He impregnates her. He sees her through the whole pregnancy. And then she gives birth. He calls his wife over. They take the child away from her and he slaughters her. Yeah. So so here are my call outs of, of why I was so shocked. I just wanted to explain that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. No, that's okay. I I just jumped right into no, it. No, no, yeah. Um He's he's driving, and an image comes into his mind, and he's like, is she cold? Is she hungry? What is she doing? Like, he's talking about Jasmine, and he's, like, curious about what she's doing. And I just was like, you care about her at some level to be curious. Like, I was like, yes, you put her in the barn, and you don't want her. But, like, why is she popping in your head in the middle of the day? Add that to me. That was one part where I was like, okay, we have hope. Maybe he will do the right thing. But at the end, he he disappointed me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my other part, um, it's when the, he's with the puppies. And he sees the puppies and he hugs them until they calm down. And then the puppies give him kisses and he cries. I was like, he has some uh, redeeming qualities as regard with animals. So why can't that be translated to Jasmine? Because a lot of times people that are super empathetic towards animals are, are normally softer people. Like, you and I are both animal lovers, and we're both soft. Yeah. 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 We're both I'm, big we're, softies. I'm a little squishy. <laughs> yeah. We're both pretty squishy. Yeah. Don't know if you can tell. <laughs> and then the other part was when he describes her smile, and it he says it lights up the room, and it's infectious. Like, when you describe somebody as lighting up a room, you're describing them as somebody who's beautiful. And that you find charming. Mm-hmm. And it's humanizing her. But he still, uh, he just, it fell flat for me. That was why I gave it a four was because I was like, I thought this was going in a different direction. There so, was enough Easter eggs that I thought it was going to end positively. So what would needed to have happened for you to give it a five? I would have needed some more hints at Marcos being capable of hanging out with this woman for nine months and then ultimately killing her because I, I, I picked up on the parts where he was soft. Um, and maybe that's my bias again, that I see, I like to look at the world through a more positive lens that people are capable of being kind and good. And I just would have either needed a balance of there to be good and evil in Marcos or just the good parts to be not included. Like, not shown that he's falling in love with this woman. It, it, like, I thought that that's where we were going. Mm-hmm. I thought that he was going to be falling in love with this woman. <laughs> and he, that's not what happens. No. At all. Yeah. Yeah. So why did you give it a five? For all the reasons that you gave it a four. <laughs> um, I 
it took me a while, right? I gave you the book, and then I, I did my research, and then I thought about it, and I was like, yeah, I wouldn't change a single page. For me, when I looked at the ending, because there's a quote on the last page where he said, do you have the quote? I do. I have it written in my notes. Just read this page. Yeah. So I can go ahead and do that if you want me to. Honestly, I just want, like, the part, because, like, the, his wife is holding, his wife is holding the baby. Yeah, you can just read it if you want. As he drags the body of the female to the barn to slaughter it, he says to Celia, his voice radiant, so pure it wounds, she had the human look of a domesticated animal. Right. And the reason why I'm giving it a five, and I'm telling you, I was shocked, like, to my core. Like, I had mouth wide open, and I told you when I handed that book to the end to the end of the story, this book had my stomach flipping. And it's because of that part. It doesn't, like, I still loved it, though. Because she lost her value. When she gave birth, she lost her value, like, to him. She, she could be discarded. And it was a part of a bigger discussion. I'm going to say it about abortion rights. I was going to say, we're both big big feminists yeah we're, we're pro-woman we're trying and we're, how often does that happen in the real world of if you can't give birth as a woman where is your value right and we're not trying to ostracize anyone who's who might be listening because we don't we don't want to ostracize but we need to be truthful like we're both pro-choice women when marcos like like I agree. Like, he was so tender to her, thinking about her. And when even that part where he came home and he embraced her and he held her. And all those parts where he was like, I taught her how to go to the bathroom and how to wear clothing. And I told you I had hope. I wanted him to be a good person. I saw hope in him that he was going to make the right choice. And the way that he discarded her, I was like, yeah, no. Like, he got what he needed. He is, and I wrote this about Marcos, he's a complicated person. Like everyone else, he stomachs what he chooses to stomach. He can live without meat, but he cannot cope with the loss of his son. So taking the baby boy from the female is is a justifiable action to him. Like, he's just like everyone else. He was on a high horse the entire book. Like, I don't eat meat because these people are, these people are sheep and... These people just go through and they're they're willing to do this heinous thing. And then he got this opportunity to get a son. And he was like, yeah, I, I'll discard her. Yeah. I got what I needed. And it was a part of a larger conversation about how we use women in this country. How pregnant women are incubators. Yeah. And most pregnant women will tell you that in those last months, eight, nine months, that they feel like incubators because people... People in their lives will not even ask them how they are. How's the baby? Yeah. They will, like, they, like, it's like moths, moths to flames. They just gravitate towards your belly because they know that a baby's in there. And, like, the whole sanctity of human life conversation we could have, which is a huge part of this book, it's also a part of being a female, is when you feel like you have no value. And that's a conversation that we're having right now in this country. In Argentina, abortion is illegal. So this is a part of what the author was having this conversation about, too, was because she sees women dying in that country because of this. So it's 
now prevalent here because we just overturned Roe v. Wade, right? Yeah. It's a part of a bigger conversation of who is more, who has more value. How beautiful that we read a book on cannibalism and we got so much out of it. Yeah, I mean, I see why you use the word beautiful. It's not a beautiful book, though. No. So, But, like, it wasn't what I was expecting. Yeah, but you and I talked about this, why we love dystopian novels. Yeah. Because you literally sit here and you think about it for weeks. And you have to talk about it and you need somebody else to read it just so that you can talk about yeah. it. Because you feel like you've gone through something. <laughs> I feel changed since reading this book. I was riding here today eating vegetarian, those egg bites from Starbucks, and I was sick thinking about the book. I was like, I don't want to eat right now. Like, this book is curdling. Curdling. That's a really good word. Yeah. I told my brother, I texted him, and I said, necessary and disgusting. Yeah. That's that's how I felt. Yeah. I mean, do you view it differently than I do about the... Well, of course you view it differently because you, you you wanted a different ending and you would have liked that better. But I guess... This this ending, though, is more realistic. It is more realistic. Than my... Than my people don't often choose the better, harder choice. People more often choose the status quo. Yeah. To just continue to follow. Well, so. and there's like the other dystopian novels, like we could talk about like The Hunger Games. We, we've read... We both read The Hunger Games. We can even talk about Divergent. Have you read Divergent? Yes. Okay. Have you read Handmaid's Tale? No, it's on my shelf. Okay. Because, like, Diver- like, Divergent and Hunger Games, there is a hero, right? Yeah. Marcos is not a hero. Marcos is not a hero, but there's also not really a hero in the Hunger Games. Or in, I'm sorry, there's not really a hero in Handmaid's Tale. Okay. And 1984. Have you read 1984? I did. You know how that ends. Yeah. So that's those to me are like the true dystopian novels. Because in the end, there's not some big crack open through the ceiling and the sunlight comes in. Yeah, reality The is people ugly. are exactly the way. They act exactly the way you think they are going to. You don't get the redemption. Yeah. I just have so much internal hope for people. And I'm often disappointed. I will be frank on that people sometimes really suck i know and they don't take care of each other and they don't value life right i agree and like that was the other big theme that i had for this i literally wrote down complacency ignorance cognizance sympathy and empathy all as one theme and the sanctity of human life because how are we like how is this reality Again, it goes back to the fact that, like, oh, you can't eat animals. Like, okay. Like, the the fact that, and I know that you talked about the origin, how it started slow and then became a part of a bigger piece. There's something about the fact that Marcos goes to a zoo and sits in an abandoned zoo and thinks about the fact that they're way past the point that they should have ever gone to. Right? That was the other part that I really loved was, like, when you realize that you've you've made a mistake and you can't go back. Yeah, because what is Marcos to do about that? Can you really go back? 
No, no, you can't go back to a time before they slaughtered the animals. And, and they can't go back to a time before they did all of this to all of those, all of the people in the in the farm. Right. In yeah. the processing plant, all of those people don't have their vocal cords. You can't bring that back. Like, well, and they're they're. This sounds this sounds terrible, but like I think you'll agree, they're not human. Like the treatment that is done to them to make them more animal than human makes them more animal. And how sad is that? Because the people that are doing that to them are the most animalistic of them all. Oh, the more the most savage. Yes. Yeah. And you, well, because you don't want somebody sitting there saying, don't eat me. Yeah. 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 And we actually, I don't know if you know this, we do that to dogs. There's people that remove the vocal cords of their dogs because they bark. Oh, God. Yeah. So that, to me, was something I wanted to talk about. Who is doing that? Yeah. What vet would allow that? I have no idea. It's like declawing cats. It's like the parts of our pets that we don't like, we can just take away. And how terrible. And that's in our real society, that we have people that are out here taking the vocal cords out of their dogs and taking the nails out of their cats. Like, it's devastating. Mm -hmm. Humanity can be so cruel and so unkind. Because we don't, there's a, we have like this line between valued life and unvalued life. And I think that's the second question I wanted to ask you. Where is the line? Okay, great. We're on the same page because I just wanted to bring this up as well. Um, where's the line of where we value life when, when it's not serving us, right? That's where the line gets drawn. And I have a quote from the author, where she says, Although my book contains clear criticism of the meat industry, I also wrote the novel because I have always believed that in our capitalist, consumerist society, we devour each other. And she goes on to list human trafficking, war, precarious work, modern slavery, poverty, gender violence are just a few examples of the extreme violence. So there's a quote that I have in here about sex trafficking. Do you mind if I read that now? No, no, go for it. Quote, everyone is involved, politicians, the police, judges. Each takes their cut because human trafficking has gone from being the third largest industry to the first. Only a few women are eaten. Uh, The guy goes on to say he paid billions for a stunning blonde who drove him wild and then he had to take things further, end quote. I paraphrased that a little bit. Okay, I'm not going to lie because just... Briefly, let me go back. That part was also terrible for me to read. Yeah. The part on the, the where they're hunting, and that man is just running his mouth. Yeah. And yeah. the fingers. The fingers in the sherry sauce. Yeah. I was just sick disgusting. to my stomach. Yeah. But thinking about that, like, he has sought out, he's he has sought out a prostitute who has been human trafficked, not for meat consumption, but for sex work, which is something that we all know happens. Yeah, sex trafficking is a real thing. Right. And then he decided to take it one further and eat her afterwards. Yeah. So, right. So it's a it's a part of like you're you're asking about the value of human life like we only value it when we are when we have met our cap on yeah. what we need from it. My line for myself, one, your line that where you draw draw your morals at, you develop when you're a child. That's part of being a child is figuring out right from wrong and all of that. And I can't hit my friend, but I can, you know, defend myself if somebody punches me or somebody little littler than me. Like, don't pick on the little guy. Like, that whole thing. But then we also have the eye for an eye. 
like what you do to me is okay if I do it back like there's the dog eat dog world like we have all of these things where we we it's like a contradiction all the time yeah of like this is only okay under these circumstances but this isn't okay because of x y and z and for me I'm a huge animal lover but like I don't like bugs I don't like bugs in my house like I've squished a spider yeah and I don't like spiders (laughs) but like and I don't like snakes like I have a moral code uh, as far as animals go and like I still have I have my two cats but like I buy products that don't say cruelty free on them sometimes well but we'll go but cruelty free is a bullshit phrase yeah cruelty free is a bullshit phrase Mm -hmm. right yeah because what does that mean I've also worked at a lab in which we were testing animal blood yeah, so how did they get that? Yeah, and they would, everybody would t- I I had such a moral quandary about that. I was like, this is goat blood, and I right. love go- goats. Right. And everybody was like, we're doing this for science. And I was like, ah, I didn't last very long at that job. I couldn't stomach it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, so that goes into a little bit of the research that I did on factory farming. So, and the languages that we're using, right? We talked about that as well. The USDA and the FDA have no parameters for any of those words. There's no parameters for free-range, cage-free, humane, all-natural, cruelty-free. Scary. They've never been defined. Terrifying. Right. So even our, even the acts that we've put into place, like the, the Against Slaughtering of Animals Act, that anti-act, there's huge exceptions allowed for farming, which all meat consumption falls under. So, like, all of that and the way that we justify it and cruelty-free, those are all just bullshit phrases. To get us to buy the products. Yeah, because, because, like, the soccer mom who's got two kids who likes to watch Lifetime movies and cry on Friday nights is going to reach for the cage-free eggs over the discount eggs because she wants to feel better about herself. And I'm not saying that she's a bad person. I'm just saying that, like, that's a bullshit way to mislead people into yeah. thinking that those animals are living better life. She's a victim of believing right. the, the, the systems that are in place that sell <laughs> right. her that. Because she's like, oh, cage-free, like, that sounds like a better life for the chickens. And I don't know why I used a soccer mom analogy, because let's face it, it's me. It's I'm the one in the aisle at the eggs looking at the cartons reading the words, thinking that I'm making the more humane choice. And the research I did for this book, it's a phrase called humane washing. Like like whitewashing, it's humane washing, which is to downplay the violence we deal with. I just got to sit with that for a second. Yeah. That is like... There oh, knife are, to the heart. There right are no now. regulations. Terrifying. Right. Why? What? I want them. I want there to be regulations. <laughs> I want to believe so that people what happened, are though, doing good things. But in the 1980s, this started like factory farming exploded around the 80s. I'm pretty sure that's right from the research I did because we needed cheaper meat and dairy products because people were having a harder time affording them. So it was a way for us to, you know, it was a way for us to pivot and get meat and dairy into people's homes, right? The dairy industry as a whole has sold us 
a lie for a very long time. The the things with the calcium, you need milk to survive and all of that. Yeah. Like, well, and there's not enough time in the world for us to talk about the FDA. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, yes. we, we don't have, like... And we can't say that it's all wrong, like, because, you know, some of the things that we eat, you know... I'm just saying, it's, it's a yeah. huge discussion. But going back to, like, trusting your government, right? Yeah. A big theme in this book is can you trust your government to really give you the info that you need so that you can make the informed choice? I, I, in an ideal world, yes. But not in... In reality? Not in this book. They don't have all the information. And in our world... I don't think we get all the information, especially like we don't like let's scale it back before we start to scare people. But, you know, when it, it like especially this with the humane washing of our meat and dairy products, like you're not really giving people information. You're tricking them. You're tricking them. And and the other thing I found out is that the USDA and FDA, like they do not they do not like find the Tyson factory that says it's humane and go and make sure it's humane. Like they just have to check a couple boxes and then they, and then they get those words put on their products. Because it's all about the bottom line. How little can we do to get people to still buy this? Right, and how can we like how can we keep up our production of our mass production of meat? It would be very expensive to actually make any changes. Yeah, and I don't have yeah. any belief that these large corporations would take that money. Like, would take the money that it needs to be actually humane. Yeah. I have very little faith. Right. And I want to just, like, circle back for if anyone's listening, which it's probably just our moms, uh, (laughs) (laughs) that this book is about... It's, it, she says that she doesn't want to write the vegan pamphlet. She's not in it to just, like... To, to make the pro-vegan, anti-meat, anti-dairy book. It's just a way for us to talk about, like, how we interpret and accept the things that are being told to us. It's a larger conversation. So, I would love it if listeners reached out to us on our Instagram and, and maybe sent us an email. Uh, talk to us about, about your thoughts on factory farming and how this book made you feel and and how it made you look at your life. Yeah, and if it's and if you don't have any thoughts on the factory farming, maybe you have thoughts on other scenarios that could fit into this. There is one more point that I want to bring up to you that goes along with the government topic. Okay. Before we get into what we're reading next. Uh I want to talk about the role of the church. In this oh book. yes, and then we I would didn't also, even talk about that church. I would love to talk about the church, and I'd love to talk about the the kids in this book. Yeah, I was going to so bring those up are the, the kids. two things that I, I want forgot to talk about I before we wrap. Forgot it up. to bring up the church. Yeah. So there's a part in this book where there's somebody that's making a sacrifice as part of their church to be eaten. He's an older man. And he says that the human being is the cause of all evil in this world. We are our own virus. We are the worst kind of vermin, destroying our planet, starving our fellow man. My life will truly take on meaning once my body feeds another. Scary. That's, so I wanted to bring that up and I forgot to when talking about the culture part. 
because yeah. that does relate it to culture, right? Because we talked about like meat as a means of survival and then meat as a means to be an industry and make money and also just meat to sustain life. But this whole religion part is looping back in that culture of this man is sacrificing himself. He's at his old age. Like, in fact, Marcos even talks about the fact that his flesh will not be. No, it'll be beaten by the scavengers. So it's not actually. It's not actually like enjoy. It's he's. I think he says it's not an enjoyable product. Yeah. Because of the guy's age, right? Yes. So you are talking about, you are talking about, like, that religious backing of... Well, let's talk about communion. I was talking about this quote with Sarah last night with my, with my partner, and she was like, the sacrament of communion is the bread is my body, the wine is my blood. And, and later on, this man that's being sacrificed references, as Jesus said, take and eat my body. Like, that to me was such a powerful parallel of this man is sacrificing his body like Jesus did. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. And, well, Sarah grew up in the church, so, like, that to her was something that she brought to the conversation a little bit. And I was like, I'm using that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, loved, I loved that call out um, of, like of communion that the author included. Yeah. Because I think it was a good parallel to kind of, or not a parallel, but kind of an opposite of the government is controlling you, that this man is kind of like part of a church and he's decided to sacrifice himself. Yeah, well, it's a it's a weird byproduct of this brutal society is that this man now wants to be yeah, sacrificed. It was also interesting the way that they kill people, or not, I'm sorry, not the way that they kill people. The way that people die is interesting. It's like they don't have any land. Did you pick up on that at all? What do you mean? Because Marcos and his wife, they look at his child being cremated in the translucent coffin, and then the urn comes back to him, right? Yeah. And then when Marcos's father dies... Same thing, translucent coffin, and part of, like, and they cremate him, and then Marcos gets the urn, right? Yeah. So part of me wondered if that was the way, oh, wait, isn't that because people were digging up? Yeah, that's where I was going, that's where I was going to assume that people would eat, like, freshly dead bodies. Right. And that's why you choose to cremate, because that means nobody can snack on your kid (laughs) or your dad. Let me tell you, when I'm dead, whatever. Yeah, but your loved ones would not agree with you there. No, that's true. Uh, the whole, the whole why would death I care? and ritual of funerals is not for the dead person. Right. Yeah. But the other part that was interesting that you did mention was that the the religious members go to that they're they are for the sap that's for scavengers. Mm-hmm. Their meat, their meat, quote unquote, gross. Yeah. Their bodies are used to sustain the scavengers. Mm. So that was really... I don't know if this quite fits in here, but I did want to talk about one other thing. It's a real-life example of a disease that's a result of cannibalism. Kuru is a disease that you get as a result of eating contaminated brain tissue. And in New Guinea, as a funeral practice, women eat the dead body. And so Kuru is starting to pop up. And these women throughout in this tribe and scientists were looking at it and they're like, why is it only the women? Because it's the women that eat the dead body because they, in this culture, they believe that since women give birth, that they're able to take in, in the, 
dead body and renew it. Okay. Which I actually found very interesting. But that was something that I would have liked for the author to include, maybe. Like, some kind of... What, like, more culture? Of, like, a, of a disease call-out. Uh, looking at it from, like, a public health perspective of, like... You can Consuming. You can still get, like... Yeah. a lot of diseases from eating somebody and and I really I really enjoyed that when I was researching I was like oh okay all right perfect we can fit this in here yeah um but yeah anyways if do you want to talk about the twins now yeah so going back to the conversation about like the the sanctity of like human life which that was like the phrase I just like or the preservation like I didn't really know how to phrase it but and it ties in a little bit to what I said about how everyone is borderline psychopathic. The kids, which is Marco's niece and nephew, right? Um, his sister's twins are... They're the evil twin cliche. <laughs> they're little shits. Marcos calls that out, too. He's like, they're the evil twin cliches. Yeah. And he says... Well, the kids say to him... You know, I wonder what he tastes like. Yeah. And, but also the kids beating the puppies. Like, I was just like, yeah, you know what? People that grow up in this world really have no empathy. They have no sympathy. Because there's no value in human life when you're, yeah, capitalizing on it a little bit. And then also, we know later on, his sister has a living being in her fridge. Oh, yeah. Which, that was also really hard. So, of course, these little kids are, like, evil little children. Their mother is cutting off the arm, and it's the the Chinese torture method of the death by a thousand cuts. Right. So, like, they're watching their mom slowly kill this person, and they're just munching away. And if the adult in your life is saying that this is okay, we can have a, a live woman in our fridge as a result. I wouldn't expect the children to be any other type of way. Yeah, but it's, like, more than just the mom. It's everybody. Oh, it's everybody. Because, like, from their perspective, their mom is doing that to this woman. Their uncle runs a plant. Yeah. A processing plant. Their teachers eat meat. Their their coll- their friends eat meat. Like, special meat. Like, so, this is their world. Yeah. The but- sister's just a really great character that represents society as a whole she does yes you're so right she is the she is the representation of everyone and how everyone thinks and just just she's just going through the flow she's an exemplar of the sheep yes the sheep mentality of let's just follow the herd right and i liked the opposite effect that she had with marco so if he's questioning things and she just is like head down I'm going to do this because everybody else is. Yeah. It's that bystander effect, I think. And they also represent, they also represent like the, the crowd mentality in that she lives in the city, which where you're more likely to be in the, the middle of the most normal aspects of it. He lives more in the country, which is more naturally questioning of what's happening in the city. Right. Like we can, we can draw those parallels right now in the United States of, city people versus country people so that was a really interesting part of this book too yeah yeah would you recommend it i would i would also recommend if people enjoyed this book reading the jungle by upton sinclair and then i had a co-worker mention um how the other half lives 
because I guess that's a book that's similar to this, and I didn't really look into that. But I read The Jungle, and that's kind of an expose of factory farming in Chicago. Nice. In the early 1900s. And it's a really gruesome read. So, but it's... It's less fictionalized than this book. Okay. Awesome. Would you recommend it? You did. You recommended it to your brother, right? Uh, Yeah, I've recommended it to my brother. I I can't stop talking about it because it's it's consumed me, this book. And I I recommend it wholeheartedly. And I, I hope people give it a chance. It's a difficult read. It is not an easy read. But I think sometimes it's important to make yourself uncomfortable and this is one of those times right like this is not a time to be unopinionated this is a time to form your own thoughts and have your own opinions and this book will help you kind of branch out if you're somebody that's just kind of trudging through it helps shake things up i would not recommend this though to like someone like my mom who's she would have a really tough time reading this and and not in that it would change her i think that she would she doesn't watch horror movies she's very sensitive like i think that she would cry and like she's very squeamish so this isn't the read that i would recommend her yeah and some people just don't want to kind of read violent things and this is a violent book yeah yeah the book that i would recommend to go alongside of it is hands down the handmaid's tale it is written as plain spokenly as bluntly about an ulterior, an, al- an alternate world and future. So I, they just go hand in hand. And that's that's with me not having read The Handmaid's Tale in like 10 years. But that book is just as stark as this one is. You've um, made a lot of like food references while you've been talking about this. Like you said, this book consumed me. Palette cleanser. Yeah. Like you're like when you listen back to this, you're gonna find it really funny, all of your food references that you've had. Yeah, but I I mean not to be like not to be like an annoying person, but it does it just goes to show like how much like food is all around us well, food is life and what food yes. is ingrained in all of us and literally we, right so like ingrained like yes the, so that language is so easily understood yeah by everyone i can say palate cleanser and there's not a single person that doesn't know what i'm saying mm-hmm. i can say i couldn't stomach it there's not a single person who doesn't know what what i'm saying right so uh i do think it's funny it's funny for this book because anybody who's read it just knows how disturbing it is <laughs> that we're kind of t- chatting so casually about it. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed this week's discussion. As always, if you have any comments about the book, what we talked about, or if you have any recommendations for future reads, make sure to email us. Follow us on Instagram at Girls Gotta Read Podcast so you can know what we are reading next. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.